Hello and welcome to the Last Alliance University of Alberta Tolkien Society podcast. Join us as we journey through the Silmarillion, exploring the deepest reaches of Tolkien's history, starting with the first song and ending with the defeat of Sauron's master, the Dark Lord Morgoth. So uh, we're here to talk about um, like Baron and Luthien's, like the rest of the story. So Baron and Luthien's like going to Angband and getting the Silmaril and then everything that happens from there to the end. And I don't know, we can also talk about whatever you want, like if there's any overarching themes or that sort of thing. So yeah, uh, we will go alphabetically and you can tell me a feeling that you had or something that you want to talk about. Um, I really like the part where uh... Luthien is like casting her spells on Morgoth. I just thought it was really powerful of her, you know, all of the like the um Aenor's sons who are bound by this oath and they haven't been able to get nowhere near as close as uh her and Baron. And I think like partially it might be because of like what we talked about last week is how Luthien and Baron aren't bound by the same oath as Aenor's sons. Um, but I just I still really like that part where she cast a spell and got Morgoth to fall asleep. I just thought that was so cool. Yeah, absolutely. It's described like in a really interesting, in a lot of really interesting mm. ways too. I forgot to reread the last part. I, I forgot most of what happens in them. It's fine. Uh, um, I think I was kind of surprised by like, like the change in pacing after like they they like get the Silmaril because like basically they get the Silmaril but like they're like long stretches like it's like they they like they there's like the there's a double CBH problem and then like they they talk about like I would rather you go back to your house to to your to your parents and she she's like no like no you're gonna die if you go alone you you need me stop being an idiot. And then like it, that is like a long narrative part about like how to get to like Angband and get the Silmarillion and stuff and like come back. And I'm not sure about like the battle with Huan, but I think so that too. But like after like Baron dies, it's like two pages like so Baron comes back to life and then they get married and blah blah blah, blah. and there's like it feels so fast. It's like I know it's condensed, but like suddenly it's like, well, I had I had like revealed in that story, or like like swimming into it in like those long stretch of narration, and suddenly like you're just slapping me in the end with the end, with in the face with the end. It's like this is too fast. I wanted a longer end. I wanted to stay longer in that. What are you doing? But yeah, that's basically what what happened. Yeah, that's interesting. We can definitely talk about like pacing and the end of the story is really interesting. Um, I also noted the part where they're actually in Morgoth's throne room because uh, that that to me feels like I want to say the most classical fairy story or folk tale style that the Silmarillion ever gets. It it feels just slightly off 
from the rest of this book somehow. What stuck out to me about that was the description of Morgoth having a court. That that stuck out to me as like a remnant from the Lost Tales version that was wild because you genuinely don't know what that court is, but apparently he's got one. Fair. Um, I think, I mean, it may be blasphemy to say, but Baron and Luthien isn't my, on the, on the top of my list of, of Tolkien-y things. Uh, but what got me this time through was uh, Huan's last use of speech. I thought it was pretty touching. Like, I don't know. Just what he chose to use it on. It uh, It's home. Oh my god, like, that's fine. You don't have to like it. I literally, like, tried to explain why I thought this was a good piece of writing to like a group of 15 people who with the exception of like one of them thought it was really bad and unreadable because it was too much like the king james bible sarah that's you i've been distracted um yeah uh what do i like about the end of this i feel like i've always been anticipating things so like i mentioned last time that i was really excited about like the wearing wearing like the skins and talking about that um i also really like the end of it who doesn't like the end of it <laughs> but i actually am i would like to talk about mandos yeah okay i'd like to talk about mandos solid um yeah okay i guess for me because tristan's not here um i noticed that there was a lot more heaven and hell wording than anywhere else in the Silmarillion, I'm pretty sure. Um, so that was really interesting. Like, it, it's sort of consistent throughout this whole ending. Like, it happens when they're in the throne room, but there's also, like, the description of the Holy Jewel and Karkaroth's, like, hell fire. Um, that's interesting. And I thought, like, the words like holy and hell were used more than they are elsewhere in the Silm. Um, but yeah, let's, okay, let's start by doing some reading together. Doot, doot, doot. Okay, um. I, I want to start reading at the section break and then go until uh, Morgoth falls asleep. And I figure, I don't know, we can take this paragraph by paragraph, like each person, like whoever wants to read can take a paragraph. Um, does anyone, is anyone interested in starting? Uh, I'm still trying to find it. Okay. Uh, um, where, which which uh, 
break, sorry. Uh, I guess, so I'll, I'll probably just start because I know where it is, but it starts with um, they passed through all perils. Hey, I've got it. Nice. Um, so they passed through all perils until they came with the dust of their long and weary road upon them to the drear dale that lay before the gate of Angband. Black chasms opened beside the road, whence forms as of writhing serpents issued. On either hand, the cliffs stood as embattled walls, and upon them sat carrion fowl, crying with fell voices. Before them was the impregnable gate, an arch wide and dark at the foot of the mountain. Above it reared a thousand feet of precipice. Their dismay took them, for at the gate was a guard of whom no tidings had yet gone forth. Rumor of he knew not what designs abroad among the princes of the elves had come to Morgoth, and ever down the aisles of the forest was heard the braying of Huon, the great hound of war, whom long ago the Valar unleashed. Then Morgoth recalled the doom of Huon, and he chose one from among the whelps of the race of the Draglun, and he fed him with his own hand upon living flesh, and put his power upon him. Swiftly the wolf grew, until he could creep into no den, but lay huge and hungry before the feet of Morgoth. There the fire and anguish of hell entered into him, and he became filled with a devouring spirit, tormented, terrible, and strong. Karkaroth, the Red Ma, he is named in the tales of those days, the Angfoglir, the Jaws of Thirst, and Morgoth set him to lie unsleeping before the doors of Angband, lest Huon come. Now Karkaroth espied them from afar, and he was filled with doubt, for news has long had long been brought to Angband that Drogluin was dead. Therefore, when they approached, he denied them entry, and bent their stand, and he drew near with menace, scenting something strange in the air about them. But suddenly some power descended from the old of divine descended from old from divine race, possessed Luthien, and casting back her foul raiment, she stood forth small before the might of Karkaros, but radiant and terrible. Lifting up her hand, she commanded him to sleep, saying, O woe-begotten spirit, fall now into dark oblivion, and forget for a while the dreadful doom of life. And Karkaros was felled, as though lightning had smitten him. I can go. Then Baron and Luthien went through the gate and down the labyrinthine stairs, and together wrought the greatest deed that had been dared by elves or men. They came to the seat of Morgoth in his nethermost hall, that was upheld by horror, lit by fire, and filled with weapons of death and torment. There Baron slunk in wolf's form beneath his throne, but Luthien was stripped of her disguise by the will of Morgoth, and he bent his gaze upon her. She was not daunted by his eyes as she named her own name and offered her service to sing before him after the man manner of a minstrel. And Morgoth, looking upon her beauty, conceived in his thought an evil lust and a design more dark than any that had yet come into his heart since he fled from the Valinor. Thus he was beguiled by his own malice, for he watched her, leaving her free for a while and taking secret pleasure in his thoughts. And suddenly she eluded his sight, and out of the shadows began a song of such surpassing loving, ah, loveliness and of such blinding power that he listened for folks 
and a blindness came upon him as his eyes roamed to and fro seeking her. All his courts were cast down in slumber, and all the fires faded and were quenched. But the Silmarils in the crown on Morgoth's head blazed forth with the radiance of white flame. And the burden of that crown and of the jewels bowed, upon, bowed down his head, as though the world were set upon it, laden with a weight of care, of fear, and of desire that even the will of Morgoth could not support. Then Lucian, catching her winged robe, sprang into the air, and her voice came dropping down like rain into pools, profound and dark. She cast her cloak before his eyes and set upon him a dream, dark as out her void, where once he walked alone. Suddenly he fell, as a hill sliding in, a in avalanche, and hurled like thunder from his throne lay prone upon the floors of hell. The iron crown rolled echoing from his head. All things were still. Yeah. So, what did you notice? As you said, a lot of hell mentioned. Uh, like here just the flaws of hell but also um when they talk about Karkaroth. the anguish of hell entered into him yes this one and i did not notice another one but there might be what else did people notice um it's very, I don't know. It's good. It's good prose. It's good. <laughs> I don't have anything intelligent to say about why it's good, but uh, it definitely lets you feel what you're supposed to feel about the space that you're entering. Did you notice the alliteration? So stuff like they passed through all perils um, is copied directly from um, the poetic version that Tolkien wrote, like the actual Lay of Lathian. So it's really fun because you can see bits of that very, very deliberate poetry entering into the prose. <laughs> Cute cat. You're gonna show off your cat butt to everybody? Is that what your plan is? <laughs> It's actually very, uh, it's actually very um, noticeable at the beginning of section breaks. So stuff like they pass through all bar all perils, or their baron buried his father's bones, um, or they bore back Baron Camlos, son of Bera, here upon a bier of branches. <laughs> that I noticed about it, and this is not about the prose, um, but in general, is that very similarly to the rat battle that we discussed last week, um, one of the weapons that's in use here is the truth, right? Um, like Luthien ensnares Morgoth 
by telling him who she is, actually, right? Um, and that's a temptation for him. And like one of the things that Luthien does when she's singing or that is drawing your attention to is kind of the truth of Morgoth's experience, right? So it talks about things that are like as dark as the void that he walked in, right? That is used against him. And so I think that's, yeah, just carrying over from last time, uh, kind of the weaponizing of like the truth of truth and experience. Um, why, like, why do you think that works? Like, what do you think about Luthien's choices of subject matter? and why they're so successful, aside from the fact that just they're true. I think there's a bit of like her Vela ancestry that comes in, like uh, suddenly some power descended from some, from, I hate this sentence, oh my God. Some power descended from of old from divine race possessed Lucian. So it's like she she like she was powerful before, but like she didn't even realize she had that power. And like I don't know if it's like the situation when like she's so much like I don't know. Like she's still in front of like Angbang in front of like the only wolf that can kill Huan. So you know like you can only power. So, like, I don't know if it's a situation or if it's, like, something that is sent to her or, like, you know, I don't know if it's internal or external that it's, she's unlocking that, but she's, like, she have has more power than she used to. Yeah, the, there's that description of possession, right? Um, why, why does Luthien have all of this power all of a sudden? I mean, we've been talking about the power of love throughout the story. Uh, I don't think it's the only option. Like, I think the fact that she, her, 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 is, her mother is directly related to Lily Maya. So, like, it's going to help to have a lot of power, to have, like, powerful parents. Uh, but, like, like, she said, a, like, a couple of things earlier like when Baron tries to like send her away she's like no like I'm not I'm not going back and leaving you to go there by yourself like I'm with you till the end and like I think that's also where her powers come from like because she's determined to see this quest through and to help her lover no matter what, and like, so, yeah. Um, another question I have is, why sleep? Luthien puts Karkaroth to sleep, and she puts Morgoth to sleep, so these really, really powerful acts are being wrought as enchanting someone to sleep. Why? What like what's the power of that? Or yeah. Um in the Silmarillion, Melian's still affiliated with uh with Lorien, right? 
Yeah, she is. She's a former uh, Vala of Lorien. Not Vala, Maya. So there's a like a connection there. I think, like on a bigger scale though, something else may be making sure that things go the way they need to go for the song to unfold properly. Uh, no spoilers for future events, but this, these somewhere else being liberated from Morgoth are going to be important. So, I don't know. I think things had to happen this way, and by the choices they made, she she's done everything in her power to make this succeed. Um, and there's a little, maybe a little outside push. Kind of like with the uh, with Frodo. Yeah, I think it's interesting that the language of possession is there for Kargaroth, but not for Morgoth. Like, at, at the point when we get to Morgoth, it's entirely her own power, even if that is arguable in the Kargaroth exchange. Um, yeah, uh, the words she says to Kargaroth are really interesting. Um, Oh, woe-begotten spirit, fall now into dark oblivion and forget for a while the dreadful doom of life. Sarah? Like, I think there's a necessary kindness in it um, that's, like, really important to this understanding of, like, the, of going after the Silmarils as Baron and Luthien are doing it as compared to even how the Sons of Feanor kind of approach the idea, right? Um, and really essential to this characterization of Luthien um, because there are a lot of characters, including, like, a lot of the most um, most clearly distinguished female characters in the Silmarillion, right, who are clearly distinguished and set apart from other people because they're fighters. And Luthien's not. The closest Luthien gets to that is, like, destroying Sauron's tower, and Sauron's not even in it. Um, <laughs> so, like, the sense that she approaches this job with the idea that she'll just send them to sleep, that, like, there's a sense of rest in it. And this kind of can relates to, to like that comparison to the outer void in which Morgoth walked. Like it's lonely, but it's like, it's about how Morgoth walked there alone. Um, but there's a distinction between the kind of thing that's being remembered and the situation that he's now in when she's like singing him to sleep, right? Um, there's a kindness and a gentleness in this approach to getting the Silmarils that's, I don't know, it's wild. I think it's important that it's a gentle way of doing things and that they don't, like, like, Baron's approach is not, dang, Morgoth is asleep on the ground in front of me, I have this rat knife, I should stab him. Like, at no point does anyone think of just killing Morgoth when he's defenseless in front of them, or even trying to. Uh, so that's, I think, a really interesting kind of approach to it. Like this almost, and it's almost too that the Silmarils are part of that burden, right? And you start to see kind of like a, a mixed narrative around the Silmarils too. That the Silmarils are part of that burden of life that exists in Aengan. Yeah, thoughts? Uh, speaking of, yeah, speaking of the language of life as a burden, there's, of course, the, you know, fall now into dark oblivion and forget for a while the dreadful doom of life, which I read out loud to Tristan, and Tristan was just like, hashtag mood. Um, 
but yeah, yep. there's also. Yep, that's a mood. <laughs> um, there's also, you know, um, yeah, what Sarah said about how she's making Morgoth feel the burden that he carries in a sort of interesting way. Um, the burden of that crown and of the jewels bowed down his head as though the world were set upon it, laden with a weight of care, of fear, and of desire that even the will of Morgoth could not support. Um, and yes, she set upon him a dream dark as the outer void where once he walked alone. So there's this repeated idea of oblivion um, versus the like weight of being alive. I don't know. I think maybe potentially this also goes back to the self-consuming and self-destructive nature of evil. The idea that being evil in the world is unnatural to the point that it the like living that way is a torment. If I may pull things in from other more uh, academic Tolkien sources. Yeah. Morgoth is the only Valar who has bound himself to the world. This is, this is why he, he's basically weaved part of himself into the fabric of the world, which is why evil remains even after he's gone. But it also means that he is tied to the world in a way that none of the other Valar are. So I think it's not unreasonable to suggest that he has the most experience of actually being alive. I don't know whether this kind of enchantment would work on any of the other Valar. This is from Morgoth's ring, right? Like that Tolkien's yes. discussion of how there's like a Morgoth element in the world because yes. Morgoth decided to like stick his essence into Arda. Specifically, the title Morgoth's Ring comes from um, the idea that what Sauron is doing with the ring, Morgoth did with the world, the globe, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Like, he it's made really the planet cool. of Arda his ring. It's really cool. <laughs> but yeah, that is what I'm drawing uh, from here. I, I like, like, that you mentioned it as like the um the unsustainability of evil but when you were talking about it it kind of reminded me of how elves conceptualize life outside of valinor and like uh, and and how like they even conceptualize death is like you rest after your life has been tiresome and you rest and then once you rested you can come back to life but uh, life is tiring and it wears down on you as you expand like as, as the longer it gets um so i don't know if this like <laughs> i don't know if it's because like the simulation is officially written from an old like an old like elvish perspective or if it's like because like I, I found that an interesting parallel because like I don't think that it's uh 
like talking about how how elves are like inherently evil or something. But like, yeah, there's a there's definitely a parallel that I found here. Yeah, that's a good point. That like the burden of embodiment, like if I can call it that, is not just an evil creature thing. It's also something that the elves feel. It also have something to do with the passing of time that's different. But that's like from like our world perspective. Like when you sleep, particularly when you deeply sleep, the time passes differently. Like like you know, like you feel like you've like slept for like ten minutes and it's you wake up and it's like, oh, it's been three hours. What? <laughs> or vice versa, you know? Um I mean it also can happen when you awake and like I don't know, focus on something or very bored or whatever, but like um there's something about sleep that changes the perception of time. And like there's also a lack of memory with sleep. Like even if you dream, like you can remember your dream until it slowly breaks and fades away. And except if you consciously make the effort to can you stop destroying my curtains, please? Sorry. <laughs> Unless you make the conscious effort to um, uh, remember your dreams. And even then, like, like it's hard. Like, the memories, like, slip between your fingers. And I think that's where, like, like, this absence of memory and time, in a way, is what is restful in elvish perspective or maybe in valor perspective in general but like since the saint marine from an elvish perspective i suppose it's partially elvish perspective yeah are there any thoughts on that I don't know, it reminds me of the end as well with like what's being offered to Luthien, one of her two options being like, you know, you are in Valinor and you forget your woes. So, yeah, okay. Um, other things people found interesting about this whole Angband quest theft. It's not particularly like interesting in this uh, literary sense, but it's like uh, I found that absolutely hilarious that uh, Beren does that uh, does to Karkara the same thing that Sam does to Sheila, like haha, light, get away. And the first thought Karkara is, oh, eat, home. And I just love that so much. And <laughs> I just. I, I know it's like a terrible like a uh, like it's the start of like another terrible moment and stuff, but like it's just that's clearly not what Baron expected to happen. He expected like Karkaros to move away from the line and be scared by it. And like Karkaros like, well, if I eat the light, I can't see the light. And he chomps on his hand and I'm like, this is this is, this is uh, unexpected thinking, but sure, let's go with that. Tristan's not here to plug Book of Lost Tales for us, but uh, if you want more laughs at Baron's actions in this exact moment, come join us as we discuss the Book of Lost Tales, where Baron 
Well, Luthien was going to handle it, and Baron just throws himself in the way because he's a manly man. Um, as opposed to here, where there's an actual reason for him to do so. It's it's great. We can we can all make fun of him together. Yeah, Tristan absolutely brought that up earlier when we were reading this passage. He was like, wow, that's so much better than Book of Lost Tales, where Baron is just, like, fully an idiot. Luthien's just, like, fully like ready and prepared to throw the cloak in front of Karkaroth and then Baron is just like no something I was really uh happy about this passage was um when we first started reading Silmarillion and like you guys kind of mentioned Baron it was always like oh he lost a hand because of a Silmarillion and so I thought that when we got to Baron and Luthien he got the Silmarillion I thought it was like from him like grabbing the Silmarillion and he, him being like a mortal man and that's what like caused his hand to like burn or like fall off or something but then Karkaroth comes it just bites and eats and I was like oh whoa okay was not expecting that so I was <laughs> it was really cool and I was really happy that it was different than what I thought it was that's awesome it's also I think really interesting that that's what you were expecting like because it makes sense, right? You know, the Silmarillion, or the Silmaril, sorry, is this holy object that's burned a lot of people that it's touched so far. And there's even that specific language of, like, it suffered Baron to touch it. So, like, the Silmaril is just like, mm, yeah, fine, I'll deal with this guy. He's okay. I was actually surprised that Baron got burned by the Silmaril, like, a little bit, not too much because he got like so like okay fine just just a warning um but because like for me like the Silmarillion burnt like and I might have just a bad memory of people burnt by the Silmarillion but for me Silmarillion burnt evil people so I was like wait but but I mean like yes there's like a thing around the Silmarillion like like this like this Oscar shitty shit but like but but that's not the point of the Silmaril to like hold the cup like the oath. The the Fernion are the one to hold the, the oath. The Silmaril themselves hold this pure light that hurts evil. And I was like, but I I mean like I I know Baron is probably like not at his cleanest right now, but still, like <laughs> that's that's rude. But, no, but, no, but the point is that it doesn't burn him, right? Oh uh, yeah. Okay. I wasn't sure because I was like it I wasn't the same impression that it burned him a little, but I wasn't I might be wrong. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe go find the passage. Uh Josh, do you want to say something? Um, just the, thinking about it now, it's it's pretty clear that Karkaroth is some kind of Fenrir analogue with the whole biggest wolf ever biting off somebody's hand. But Baron isn't really a tear analog, is he? I mean, who is tear really? Mostly just some fighty dude. <laughs> so probably Torin. Except that Torin's already <laughs> somebody else. Yeah, I, I, I see what you mean though, in that. Like, the story of Fenrir is very much, like, that story of betrayal of someone you grew up with, right? Like, the Aesir raise the wolf. Yeah. And then are like, oh, but he's going to kill us. And then bind him, right? Yeah. 
uh, about the passage you were right. I just misread it. Uh, so yeah, it's like the jewel, jewel suffered his touch and hurt him not. I think what confused me was uh, the radiance welled through his living flesh and his hand became like a sh as a shining lamp. And I was like, oh. is that like, and I, I realized it could just be like when you put your hand on the light and it goes through like, it's okay. <laughs> I have yeah. extreme interpretations. No worries. Um, but yeah, like Josh's point about how um, the story of like Tyr and the Fenris wolf is really different. I think in large part because the Norse gods are not nearly as moral as Tolkien's gods at yeah, all. The, like the story is yeah. very different. I just think it's interesting that. Uh, one of the characters shows up but the person whose hand he is biting off he has no relation to the other character yeah they're repeating the image but without like the relation behind it yeah um yeah and instead building like entirely new meanings um oh right here's a question that i thought i could ask um what are the differences and similarities between Karkaroth's hunger and uh, Ungoliant's hunger? Ungoliant can actually eat light and not be hurt by it, Karkaroth. Karkaroth is light celiac. He wants to eat it, but it can't pass through his digestive system properly. Basically. Like, that's basically how it is, right? Ungoliant's thing is that she devours light um, and, in a sense, yeah, it metabolizes it, turns it into darkness, right? When she devours light, the light goes away. With Karkaroth, it's like, well, it's inside me now. I can't see it, but it burns. Um, and it doesn't, like, there's nothing to be done with it. For Ungoliant, that's, like, a source of, it, it sustains her. For Karkaroth, it does not do that. Because Karkaroth is not an independent void being, and Ungoliant is, presumably. Also, Karkaroth has been made, well, made to an extent by Morgoth, and like he's very controlled to an extent by him. Whereas, like Morgoth shoots his band every time, like the spider enters his like line of sight, because he he has no. <laughs> No, no, no control over her. Like he, he thinks he, he thought he could, and then she was like, "What? You think?" And and he was like, "Oops, miscalculation." Versus like Akalos being very much his creature. Yeah, and I, I still think that Ungoliant is outside of the, like the good and evil framework, because she's not, like, derivative of Morgoth. Um, I think she represents something more primal, more consumptive. Um, I think I phrased it better in the past, and I have to go to class, but yeah, I don't think she would react to hallowed things the same way. Bye. Yeah, that's fair, that's fair. I don't know, I thought maybe there were some similarities in terms of um, like that association of evil with consumption. Um, 
and the way that it's ultimately self-defeating in the end. Like for Karkaroth, it's like you bit off more than you could digest. Um, for Ungoliant, it's like the fact that if she eats everything else in the end, there will be nothing left to eat but herself. Uh, but yeah. Um, what else did you guys want to talk about today? I mean, in a side note about what we were saying earlier about like destiny, um, particularly when Garrison was saying, I'm not talking to Garrison on my phone, that's why I'm confused about who I'm talking to, Rob. Um, <laughs> When Rob was saying that um, part of the idea about putting Morgoth to sleep in that, like, those Silmarils and Morgoth, and, like, they still have a role to play in the general song, right? Um, and things left to play out. Uh, in that vein, um, there's Baron's knife snapping when he goes for the second Silmaril, not when he goes for the first one. Um, because for the first one, his motives are good and everything is fine and he's supposed to have it and it's supposed to come away. But for the second one, no. The second one is overreaching. Yeah. And that's just like a attached note about the knife, I think. When I was reading that part and as soon as Baron was like, hmm, maybe I'll take a second one. I was like, no, no, you don't need a second one. You already got the first one. You don't need it. Just get out of there with Luthien so you guys can live happily. And then the knife snapped and I was like, yes, you didn't need the second one. Now just get out of there. But like the knife snaps and like makes Morgoth almost wake up. So it's like you're sitting there and you're just like, Baron, don't do it. And then when something bad happens, it's like it's like a vindication. You're like, yeah, exactly. That's why you don't do it. <laughs> Also, I love okay. also how Huan is like, yeah, so those two have a plan to go in, but they don't really have a plan to go out. Um, so yeah, guys, like, so everyone, please keep an eye on those two idiots, because I kind of like them, and I don't want them to die, but they very much are likely to die at this point. So do, do me a favor, and I like the, like, the men with egos are like yeah sure no problem that sounds cool and then to see them it's like oh time to do a quick sweep extradition and it's like i love it i yeah that's what i was kind of thinking of moving on to because i completely forget that the eagles are in this story at all like every single time and so i got to it on reread and i was like oh the eagles are in this story wild why are they there um and it's so weird it almost just feels like the eagles have to be in every new catastrophe they just have to be involved every time and i don't know i was i was kind of thinking about that too like why are there eagles in this story why does luthien see gondolin like what's the purpose of that yeah i don't know about gondolin but my argument about like the eagles coming is that the eagles uh, are the creature of a man way and so like 
this is not directly men this i don't think it's man way doing it himself but symbolically it's man way combating evil even though it's not like in the story i think consciously Manuel was like no i'm turning my eyes away because i refuse but like the egos was like this is bullshit you're supposed to like kick his butt and like if you can't do it directly you're gonna like make so that everyone who annoys morgoth are gonna be or morgoth or someone later like is gonna be helped because like responsibilities Manuel, we're gonna take the over for you kind of thing so yeah so symbolically i think it's like this like Manway still has something to do against evil, even if he officially relinquished his authority and responsibilities. Yeah, I think the eagles are wild in terms of how they function as like giving worthy characters a new lease on life. Like the eagles kind of serve two functions. Um the like last minute rescue of people in circumstances where they would otherwise die and the recovery of bodies that would otherwise be desecrated yeah they're like a blessing like i think yeah agree with eloise in the sense that like this is this is what manway feels like he can do and it's blessed people um and so that's kind of how 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 it operates is like you know when the eagles come like you're being given like a kind it's it's it is it's like a gift from the gods right it's a gift from from one way specifically um an endorsement of what you're doing or like a final blessing on your life i guess like no eagle comes to do anything about feanor like spontaneously combusting in battle um but they do come to carry Fingolfin's body away right um and you see that again here with Baron and Luthien where it's like you know what you know what I'm I like this I like this this was a good choice you did some good stuff <laughs> and uh fought a great evil and I with that <laughs> hey Sarah which I also think is why it appears specifically for Fingon and Magros yes are the eagles miracles? Yes. Cool. Do you want to like elaborate on that theologically? Um, <laughs> sure. Great. Uh, I mean, like it's they're kind of miracles, I guess. Um, So especially, I think, and this is, I'm not an expert in Catholicism, so we don't have any of our Catholic people here, and I'm going to mess this up. Um, you're like the closest but, to a Catholic, we, because you're such a heretic yeah. from a Catholic perspective. Um, but I know Catholic. that, like, with saints, um, there Wait, are- Wait, you're like, Catholic? I mean, I've been, I, I can't, I can't say I'm not because I've been baptized. So like, until I'm dead, I'm Catholic, but, uh, yes, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I used to be, I used to follow the Catholic. So Eloise is like yeah. Catholic in the same way that I'm Greek Orthodox. Yeah, yeah. basically. <laughs> and, uh, um. I, I, I'm pretty sure like Sarah's 
experience of miracle like knowledge about miracles is as great as mine which is like or greater because um very low very low <laughs> yeah so as far as i can kind of tell with the eagles um leaving aside leaving aside gandalf's specific command of them or like relationship with them most of the time the eagles appear when someone's doing something that you kind of find to be like very good and um like a noble end and the eagles are both a sign of that and also like something that happens when you when you know that's happening right um Fingen rescuing Midros is a really good example there's physically no way like the physical world does not allow Fingen to get Midros down from Thangorodrum safely um the eagles come the literal deus ex machina to like help to to make that happen um and it's because fingen and mybros are the um instruments of reconciliation for the noldor right like what you had were the remaining sons of feanor and their people and then all of the rest of the noldor who had been abandoned on the other side and had to cross the helcraxe um and so there's this huge rift and the only person who is going to bridge that rift is fingen because he cares about Mydros. um and so you kind of see when the eagles appear it's as both it both enables them to do this noble thing and also endorses it, I guess. Which is not really how you think about miracles. Miracles are more like, um, miracles are less endorsements, I guess, and more just general gifts. Miracles aren't about deserving them, um, but this is, these are very much blessings, I think. They do have mirac miraculous properties in the sense that, like, Miracles are defined by things that happen that can't physically happen. Like you have no physical way out of something. It's about the supernatural, right? Your supernatural he healing and stuff like that. But they are, I think they're more blessings than miracles. Um, but they do also tell you like you have to, uh, you have to have done a miracle to be sainted, I think. Um, and uh, that will, there's definitely an association of the eagles with like the best people uh the best and most noble people um in the silmarillion especially so yeah there's some thoughts some thoughts theologically on the eagles i guess uh about like my knowledge of miracle is also that like the person receiving the miracle have like usually demonstrate a lot of faith either in god or in in Jesus, like, um, and here, like, that's also not what I really get from like when the eagles appears. Like, I mean, Gellar probably like is clearly sure like to believe that Manwe exists because he hanged out with the Vellas. But uh, like, Sam and Frodo. Yeah, maybe, but like, who knows? Like, we're not gonna see them ever. So, like, well, I mean, actually, yes, but we, know, you know, <laughs> they had this time, they don't know. Uh, um, like, I would say Lucian would be like 
of all the people who had like, I mean, Lucien is close in Baron and Lucien, but like she hasn't met the Vanal either. Um, like Medros and forgot his name and his lover. Like also, uh, <laughs> listen, it's on tape now. <laughs> Medros and Mingen um have seen the Vala, so they believe they exist, but it's not like Fingen saving Medros, as you said, is not for the Vala or by faith of the Vala. It's something else. Something some people will call it filthy, some people will call it romance. Uh <laughs> it's a mix. Um it's but yeah, love. like for love. Very all encompassing love. <laughs> um, but yeah and and so yeah like i think in that sense uh, eagles are not miracles but at the same time like i will argue that how to say that um even though they are parallels is a catholic like hierarchy and like views of everything and stuff um I feel like the pantheon, the theological premises of uh, Middle Earth, or like Arda in general, are not exactly the same. Like there's not one God requiring you believe in his power for the miracles to happen, in a sense, you know? And I feel it's more like about doing the right thing than it is about like following a god's command or something like that if that makes sense i don't know that's i think that's a really interesting claim sarah's frozen so i don't know if she has or not <laughs> um and you know I'm we broke. have Oh, you guys are fine. Okay, now you're. I can hear you at least now. Okay. I think Eloise makes good points. Um, kind of the distinction, especially the distinction between like doing something that's like the explicit will of the Valar or like done out of like a sense of responsibility to the Valar as opposed to like a sense of responsibility to each other. Um, but I think that that's, that's almost a theological point in itself, right? Um, like, that, that the things that Manwe chooses to send the eagles for are not the people who best, like, listen to the exact thing that he says all the time, but, like, the people who are... I guess, standing up to Morgoth in ways that he likes, or that you kind of assume that he likes because the eagles are there, right? Um, and it does kind of make a statement about what kinds of things are considered like the best, um, the best weapons against evil, right? In that, yeah, a lot of these things, a lot of times when the eagles come, it's because of or to aid in things that are done out of 
out of love and out of care. Even oh, Singleton, yeah. right? Yeah, I feel like who, go, who rides to his death because he thinks that everybody he cares about is dead. I feel it's not about like who stands about Morgoth in ways that he like men ways likes. It's who stands against Morgoth influence. Like Morgoth's influence will destroy friendship and families and lead to treason and like to mistrust, etc. And that's why Feanor, who basically did all of that, uh, <laughs> does not resist the eagle and is left to become a flammable elf. Um, but, but on the other hand, like what Beren and Luthien are doing, like what Phil Garfield did, what like uh, Maedros and Fingen are doing is not necessarily consciously, but it's partially like combating his influence of breaking ties between people and i think that's why the eagles show up because it's it's not about being like it's not about beating morgoth because like even baron and luthien they had the occasion to do it as they could have slit his throat while he was sleeping and then try to run away with the crown and then have people take the silmaril of the crown or something but instead of like treachery or like like they chose to like support each other and like hold to their word hold to their oath hold to their love and 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 keep true and stay true to themselves and who they are and how they were like and how they were put in that context and etc um and like, I think that's why the eagles come by themselves. And when, like, and like in the Lord of the Ring, like Gandalf convinces, like, the eagles to come because it's like, well, like, not only like those two, like, those two did so much <laughs> for like combating evil in the world, but like they also like Sam didn't have to go, like. Frodo didn't even have to go either. Frodo was like hoping to stop in Rivendell and 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 peace out back to the Shire. And he crossed the entire freaking continent and Mordor to help the entire world, which is like, yeah, I think you deserve like despite what you did at the end, you like which no one knows at the time. Uh you you deserve some slack. You deserve a ride, I think. Um so yeah, like it and it's this strength of characters, this like strong bonds are what are like honored by the presence of the of the eagles, I think. And because they fight not evil directly, but the influence of evil that tends to sever uh ties between people. Yeah, I would like definitely agree that especially in the Cimmerillion, the Eagles, um, I don't know, bestow their blessing upon people who are like trying to mend those rifts between different groups. I don't know. I also think that the Eagles, like the, the Eagles blessing subtextually makes Fingen and Mithros like more gay but that's not relevant to today's discussion. 
Um, okay, moving on from the Eagles. So we've got that fun bit where they wander around in the wilderness and Luthien is like, yeah, we can do this. And Baron's like, no, but you don't have this and you don't have that. And Luthien's like, yeah, it's fine. And Baron's like, no, I need to persuade you that we need to do this thing for you. And Luthien's like, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> You're definitely doing this for me, but whatever. <laughs> um, so they go back to Doriath and Thingol has, Thingol is not doing great. Doriath is not doing great. Um, they go back and then Thingol finally changes his mind. Thingol's kind of cornered at this point. Tristan was laughing at him for the part where uh, Melian refuses to give him counsel. <laughs> and, like, the reason she gives is, like, no, like, the doom has already happened. You brought it. We just have to wait now. But Tristan was like, why would I give you advice now? You haven't listened to it before. Why would I waste my time if you're not going to listen to it again? That's basically, like, that's pretty much what it's like. She's like, why? Why would I tell you anything? Why would I do that? <laughs> like, Million is like, if I tell you something, you're going to take my word and do the absolute opposite? Like, the worst possible choice? So I'm not going to tell you anything, so there's a mild chance you do at least a bad choice, not the worst possible choice. You will definitely not do the good choice, but at least it would not, it would just be mildly bad instead of absolutely terrible. Because she's so done with his bullshit. She's like, I'm done with you. Yep, you know, it's bad when Melly is just giving up. A lot of there are a lot of things happening in here that like collectively drive Thingle into a corner. Mm -hmm. um, among them are like now if he also turned now if he turned down Baron again, um she clearly prefers Baron and ran away and also almost ended up married to a Fainorian. Disgusting. Like like Baron is preferable to that. Baron is preferable to that. Um he's also got bigger problems because Karkaroth is like running around on his borders. So I feel like by the time they get back. He just looks at them, looks at Baron with only one hand left, and is like, you know what? You know what? I, sure, fine, clearly, this is not going to go my way. Everyone is against me. The world stands against me in this. So I will allow it. What, can, what else can you do? And Million, like, just plunges the <laughs> knife deeper, but like, yes, of course everyone is against you. I told you so. <laughs> Also, I, want, I want to go through my book and I can't because kitten. <laughs> Cute. Melian is too good to say I told you so, and honestly, I cannot. Circumstance is just so extreme. Um, yeah. I had like two thoughts about this, and it was that um, first of all, there's some really cute parallelism going on where it it very kind of deliberately mentions um that 
Farron leads Luthien into the halls of her father, which is a parallel to the first time they're in those halls when Luthien leads Baron into them. Um, and then there's another part where, you know, Baron takes Luthien's hand, Baron lays his hand in Luthien's, which is paralleling Luthien at the beginning, like putting her hand in Baron's. Also, according to Tristan, it's paralleling Luthien taking, or Baron taking Luthien's hand is also parallel to Karkaroth taking Baron's hand, but thanks, Tristan. Um, so anyway, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so you have this kind of relationship coming full circle, but it also kind of, I don't know, it's really funny because it, it creates this meaning where Thingol says at the beginning, like, if you do this, Luthien may set her hand in yours if she wants to. And there's that irony of Luthien having already in that exact language set her hand in Baron's. But mm -hmm. what we see at the end where this is the first time that it mentions like Baron set his hand in Luthien's is that it's not Luthien who needed Thingol's permission, it's Baron. <laughs> Baron is the one who needs a dad <laughs> to tell him what to do. So those parallels that you mentioned, because like, um, yeah, it's like Lucian already told her father, like, or like showed her father at least that. What what is that what is that dumb thing of you you have to authorize who marries me? What the heck? Um no. I chose this guy and if I have to die, I will get him. Uh and like single's like, no no, but I do that for you good. And she's like, I don't care. Going for the booty. And <laughs> And she follows Baron like literally into Engman. So it's like, you know, like uh, at this point, Thingol was like, uh, I don't think I'll find any other uh, uh, person that she'll follow, literally follow into Engman. And I don't think I want her to find another person that she'd literally follow into Engman because my daughter into Engman once is already too much for my head. Uh, <laughs> so there's that. Um, and like it's like this Baron needed Thingol's permission is like very much like shown all across the chapter when he's like every time the thing like you know you could just like do like I do with my dad whatever my dad says and be like and just live your life and he's like I throw a nose lady I promise that to you dad it's like but yeah but I mean my dad's being an idiot. I already showed, said yes to you. Like, we already married. Why, why are you talking about? And he's like, but you don't understand. I need the permission. And, and like, yeah, he's the one who needs permission. Luthien is like, oh, permission? No, I'll ask for forgiveness eventually. Once he puts his head out of his ass. And I'm pretty sure Millian encouraged that. She was like, yeah, like, you, your dad keeps ignoring what I'm saying. Like, just ignore what your dad is saying. It's just when it's a family. 
there's that little tidbit about how um, Baron is caught up in human customs. Like it's the custom of men to not go against the will of the father. What did you guys think of that? It must confuse Lucien a lot. I feel like she'd understand like having to follow your like your oath, but the you have to ask my like you have you have to have my dad being okay with that. But my mom already ships us and she has prepared a wedding and everyone is everything is ready. Like we, why do you need my dad's permission? Like literally everyone in the kingdom is okay with that, except him. Like and maybe Darren. Okay, sure. But who cares about him? Um <laughs> you know, it's like it's 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 um it's from a cult like culture shock perspective, like intercultural marriage. That's how I see it. It's like it must be like, okay, I understand it's important to you, but it's also very annoying in that context. How important is it? And he's like, very important. And she's like, fine, we're going to get this stupid jewel then. And I'm gonna smash my dad with it. Cause like honestly, ah. Yeah. Uh, I think that it's interesting kind of when you put it in or slot it in with a lot of other kind of uh, discussions of family allegiance that are happening in the Silmarillion um, because like Tolkien says it's a human custom now but how many problems are caused because of the because of the way that elves think about like their families right um because of the way that Feanor's sons think about him because of the way that Feanor thinks about Finway because of like the sense of like part of all of Finway's like or uh, Feanor's like marching to Middle Earth, or marching to Beleriand, and like his adventure, like this is partially sparked by the fact that Finway died, and there is a break in the family, um, and in the way that Feanor like perceives the loyalty of his brothers to his father, right? And also Finway's loyalty to Feanor, and so like there is, I think. Like, I think Tolkien's stories are actually, a lot of them have a sense of, like, it's really important who your dad is and, like, your loyalty to your father. Um, and, and that as a reciprocal relationship, right? Also the re relationship of fathers with the children. Um, so it's interesting now to be like, it was super important for Baron because he was human that Luthien have a good relationship with her dad. Like... <laughs> This is clearly important to elves. Elves clearly find it important to have a specific kind of relationship with your dad. Um, I think yeah. the only implication that's possible here is that it might be less important for Thingol and his people who didn't go to Valinor and who appear to have a different, who might have a different cultural context around uh, gender relations and family relations um, than the Noldor do. But like, this is clearly a preoccupation with the Noldor, so. Yeah, I, I want to say something and then I'll hand it over to you, Eloise. Um, it, it also kind of fell flat for me in the same sense, right? Because it, 
It sounds like it's implying that humans have more of a patriarchy than the elves, but that seems a little bit ridiculous after, you know, Thingol's proprietary views about his wife and daughter. Uh, hi, cats. Um, and, <laughs> like, Ale's, like, proprietary views on, like, his wife and son, and, like, Tergon's, like, the same, and, um, man, I don't even know, like, other example right uh like Kelligorm and Kurufin's entire existence but also specifically like Kurufin's words about like the women of the Noldor to Ale. like yeah it, it, it's weird because the elves clearly also have a patriarchy also like Beren is from like the group of humans who were most in contact with elves I feel so how much of this patriarchal view or like respect of the father is just a generation of living around elves who are like respect your dad because that allows for the absolute destruction of the Noldor um, <laughs> um, you know like Baron is like I don't know the, how like any like generation of humans who hanged out with elves uh like the fact that like this definitely has been a cultural exchange so i'm not saying that there was not like this concept before they encountered like um this um this um dancing king into the woods but um like I, I think it could also like could also be Elvish influence that the elves are like no no it's the humans it's it's the humans who do that so the elves have absolutely no respect for family and and parents uh, see we can slay we can slay we don't respect family what are you talking about um, and and yeah um, as you say ironic. Well, okay. I guess let's start. Okay, we should probably talk about how this ends. I feel an obligation to that. Um, Kara, as the only person, or Kara and Eloise, as the people who haven't read this before, what were your first reactions to the ending? I kind of thought it was like a bit sad because, like, it started talking about how like Doom eventually caught up with them and like they passed away. So I thought it was. Like a bit sad after like their whole grand adventure to finally get together and like they did get to stay together for a long time but I just thought it was like a bit sad I don't know I mean use the outline of the story because I knew that uh there was something about like Saving you, like your lover from the dead, and then like becoming a mortal, and like parallel with Arwen and stuff, and uh, or more exactly, Arwen parallel with Luthien. Um, so it's not like it came as a surprise. Uh, I think like the two things that came a bit as a surprise was like one, the pacing that suddenly like, oh yeah, like resurrecting you, 
who has a husband lover just takes a few paragraphs it's like very quick he just chats with mendos um versus like <laughs> like looking for car carols like took two entire pages um and the second thing that kind of surprised me was I mean, I, I, it's been hinted at before, it's been mentioned before, but like how they were like, how, it, it's not a proper word, but like how negatively it's been portrayed that to choose mortality. It's like, I know it's from an Elvish perspective, so it's like, like, uh like she she died and it's sad blah, blah, blah. but like i think what really like wrote me the wrong way is more like like we lost something precious and i'm like you mean someone <laughs> like you know it's like like we'll never have such a beautiful and powerful woman ever i'm like yeah but like can't you be happy for her like and also like like it's it's this weird back and forth between like this beauty and mortality it's a gift like i i okay it's like it's this back and forth between rationally the and the comprehend that mortality is seen as a gift it is what it's a gift of liberty to humans but they don't understand and the narrator really don't understand why mortality is a gift in, like I feel in that passage and he's like but she's dead now she could be there forever and she's dead now it's it's a bad thing and I'm like no you said it yourself three lines earlier it's a gift of Ilovata it's a gift but you but the narrator don't understand the gift part he don't understand like they don't they don't seem to understand like how beautiful it is to have something like that ends and that makes you cherish it so much more and that also makes you less likely to be wary of it like the elves become i i don't know